Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Real Leaders Radio. I'm Sue Heilbronner, and you found us here yet again. You found us at the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most innovative leaders in the world. And today, we have a really different spin on Real Leaders. We're happy to welcome Devin Tavona. He's a co-founder and CEO of a company that you're going to be hearing about more and more. The company's called Pana. It's P-A-N-A. And I expect Devin will have a chance to tell us all about it. Thanks for joining us today, Dev. Hi, thanks for having me, Sue. Devin, the way this podcast starts out is we ask our guests to give us their three-minute life stories. So you're on. Go. All right. So my three-minute life story, it starts on a llama farm not too long ago. That just happened in our last episode, Devin. <laughs> I know. It was something I know, unique. I know, I know. I'm sorry. Llama founders are, are, llama farms are really where a lot of companies start. I was born to an engineer and a doctor. I think that combination of human plus technology has always been a part of me. When I was a kid disassembling my dad's computers and trying to figure out how to reassemble them again, but also, you know, get, getting that creative side of myself and, and my background uh, I've always been highly academic, spent my entire academic career here in Colorado, uh, went to the University of Colorado Boulder. I, I went to Boulder not really realizing the startup ecosystem that we had there. I mean, I was, a, I was an 18-year-old kid looking for a phenomenal college experience, but really fell into entrepreneurship and what it meant to be a maker in the 21st century through uh, a blush with the startup community through a, a company called Everlater. Uh, this was a Techstars 2000. 2009 company, I believe. That was back when Techstars was still just like a bunch of people hanging out in David Cohen's basement. They brought me on to build mobile product for them. And that was the first time when I saw, you know, six men and women in a room building something and and being successful building something for the internet. And that was really where the inspiration for me came from to be a founder. From there, I spent some time at Flipboard as a mobile developer, uh, spent some time at MapQuest as a developer as well uh, after Everlater went through a successful acquisition there. Um, And then after graduating from school, found the opportunity, found myself in the place to to found a company. It, It was a fortuitous set of events where the right people and the right timing came together. We got accepted into Techstars off of the velocity that came from the New Venture Challenge. And a whirlwind of a year and a half later, we ended up here with uh, a company that is growing and, and becoming successful. So Devin, first, just to take the surprise out, just tell everyone what Hannah does. Definitely. So Hanna is a team of on-demand travel experts that give you access 24-7 to someone who can book your flight, your hotel, your rental car, deal with things like cancellations and changes, basically be your travel superhero in the sky, uh, as, as you like to say, actually. <laughs> That's great. Dev, when do you recall that fateful day when we met? Three years ago? I mean, it's a long time ago. How long ago was it? It was about three years ago. We were we were randomly matched in, I think, a mentor speed dating uh, event. And I, I do recall that well. In fact, I recall our, our first phone conversation where you told us our, our previous idea for a company was a terrible idea. That makes sense. Well, the first problem there is that you actually called me and everyone who knows me well, <laughs> as you know, know, knows that calling me is a terrible idea in the first place. So I was probably already a little salty. So I want to just go back because I know a lot of young people listen to this podcast and I think you have some really great lessons. First of all, Dev, how old are you? 24 years old. Super. So. I think you have great lessons related to college. First, you applied to schools other than the University of Colorado at Boulder, right? 
Correct. Where else did you get in other than Boulder? Uh, so I applied to 15 schools. Okay, uh, don't list all of those. Got into all 15. <laughs> Most prestigious was Stanford and Harvard. How did you make or why did you make the decision to turn down Stanford and Harvard and come to the University of Colorado? A couple reasons. One, I had access to an incredible opportunity. Uh, the Betcher Foundation here in Colorado um, had offered me a full ride scholarship to any in-state university. Their mission is to keep kind of the best and brightest, which I guess they categorized me in, in the state of Colorado. And it worked because really what I was doing was I was weighing the factors of $200,000 of debt versus the ability to do anything in school and post-graduation, explore things that might not make the most financial sense on paper, but may flourish into something. And, and actually, I really think that that freedom very much allowed me to, immediately after school, found a company, which is you know, one of the riskiest financial endeavors that you can take. So I think post-Stanford, I, I wouldn't have been able to make that. Was that an easy decision for you to make? No, absolutely not. Even when I was 13 and disassembling my dad's computers, I was envisioning going to Stanford and being a computer science student there and then naturally becoming a part of a whirlwind startup in Silicon Valley. That was the dream. And it turned out to be different. <laughs> I never heard that. I mean, I really never made the connection between sort of your early integration with technology and, and that part of your story. When you were at CU Boulder, you alluded to something called the New Venture Challenge that happened at the University of Colorado. Just quickly share with our listeners what that is. Absolutely. It's an entrepreneurial competition for students at the University of Colorado to pitch a business concept, work with some mentors in the community, get feedback about their idea, build an MVP, and then ultimately pitch that at a demo day of sorts. And I think this is really important because that event, it's actually how we met, right? Mm -hmm. And how you met lots and lots of people that are extremely involved in PANA. So I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about, in a way that might inform people who are looking at school, looking at either a collegiate or a post-grad experience, how to really take advantage of what universities give you if you're thinking about entrepreneurship. It really has, for me, had very little to do with the academic program at CU, and apologies to any CU professors who might be listening to this. I, I loved your class. But uh, a lot of the opportunities for me came outside of the classroom and were opportunities that I had found for myself. When I was actually making the decision between Stanford and CU, uh, I forget who gave me this piece of advice, but they said the exact same resources are available to a student that goes to Stanford as a student that goes to CU. The difference is at a school like CU, you have to go out and find them and you have to hunt for them. They're not just readily available for you. And so with that advice, that's something that I did. I found New Venture Challenge. I found Brad Berenthal. I found that entire community there. I found the startup community, which wasn't naturally handed to a student on a silver platter, especially five years ago at the university. I found a lot of other communities that became really integral into my experience. The Betcher community continued to be important. The president's leadership community at CU continued to be important. And finding those smaller cohorts of like-minded people who were similarly rigorous in their pursuit of finding meaningful things to do was probably the single most critical thing I did. 
Makes sense. And I know a number of the people that came out of that program with you. And basically, like you, they're all superstars. So clearly the selection process for that scholarship is pretty solid. Well, now, the book has not been written yet. So <laughs> we'll see. That's a fair point. <laughs> Neither has mine. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about how you have acquired interesting, very talented people in your circle of, I call them rabbis, but your circle of advisors, cheerleaders, coaches, all sorts of people. What do you think you do well that makes that possible? And what's unique about you that makes you successful at doing that? It's a really interesting thing to think about uh, because I don't think it's something that I do intentionally. I think being incredibly authentic and, and authentically passionate and exposing myself in both the things that are working for me, but also the things that I'm just confused about or have questions about and just not being afraid to ask those questions of really smart people. They give you really good answers, surprisingly enough. And I think one of the things that you said about me once that this was the first time I had heard it and actually it resonated with me is that I believe that I make people want to root for me, which Honestly, I don't know the secret sauce behind that, but I think it has to do something with being authentically passionate. And it, it sounds simple. Care a lot about the thing that you're working on. Do it visibly and publicly and bring people along for the ride there. You're going to develop uh, quite a group of rabbis. And it's so funny that you call them rabbis. My pipeline of people that, that I send emails to are called the Pana Rabbis. It's <laughs> hilarious. How many people are on that list? 183. This is a great example. People ask me all the time. They ask us about all sorts of things. How many people do I need to talk to in order to raise money? Or how many advisors is a good number? Or how many mentors should I have? And so I just want to just put a fine point on that. Devin is 24 years old and has over 180 people in his email list of rabbis who are willing to do something for him and for this company. And I assume this is the case, you know, on those occasions, like last week when you were in the New York Times print edition, which is a huge honor and a huge thing for your business. When those 183 people find out about it, it helps that story reverberate enormously, right? Absolutely. And the one thing that I'd also add is that I have a variety of levels of engagements that I, I have with people. You know, I have my seven or so um, you're definitely included in that category of people who I text about the business, I call when when I, when I have a question, you know, are in that inner sanctum. They're the high rabbis, the Kohanes, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No Jewish history. All right, great. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I have that group of inner sanctum people, but building that larger group of whether you call them cheerleaders, whether you call them mentors, advisors, um, is incredibly important. And the thing that I do consistently is have an engagement point for them. And, and that engagement point is that monthly update that I send out about the business. It, it's a really low ask to get someone on there. And once you get someone on that list and they start seeing the progress of the business, they start seeing the progress of the founders, then they start engaging more and more and more. Because one of the scary things for me was I was like, how am I possibly going to try and talk to 183 people consistently? And this is a great mechanism for, for me to do that. Yeah, this is something that Techstars, I think more than anyone I've ever encountered, really emphasizes is the importance of reliable and routine updates. And one of the things I want to say from my perspective in this conversation is, if you are listening and you are trying to cultivate mentors, the one thing mentees or companies or people who want help routinely fail to do 
is to follow up after they've asked you to do something and you do it and let you know how it went or how things are going. I think there may be, I don't think that's about laziness. I think it's more, well, I don't want to interrupt them again. They were already really helpful to me. But just so you know, we're all wondering. And I do think you do a fantastic job of doing that, Devin. There's another element there that's in that follow-up that is as simple as the traditional business introduction. A traditional business introduction goes, you know, person, meet person, go off, talk about stuff. And then you do. And I think a lot of people fail to circle back and tell the person who made the introduction, by the way, we connected and it was wonderful. You know, that's another element of, of circling back that, you know, the person who did you a gift and, and exchanged that social capital uh, is curious and interested to hear about it. And, and that's a piece of the loop that I think a lot of entrepreneurs or just growing professionals forget as well. I know about your company that Pana wasn't the first idea for this business coming out of CU that you and your co-founder, your one co-founder at the time, Leanne Haug, had. Talk a little bit about the first idea that you went with that I think, if I remember correctly, is the one through which you did get accepted into Techstars and the journey to pivot from there. Absolutely. You know, it's become a bit of a joke, the number of names and concepts we've had. In fact, we've started naming conference rooms after the previous concepts here at Pana. So we started in the spring of 2014 with the concept of Varsity. And Varsity was a business focused on the college campus and focused on the process of discovery at the college campus. So we were really interested in the problem set of things that you were passionate about as a growing human and the things that were happening around you. Um, in fact, it was a, a bit of a realization that a lot of the most exciting and most interesting things for us had happened outside of the classroom. And we were figuring out, you know, how could we connect more students to those experiences? So we built technology around getting to know you, getting to know what was happening around you, mushing those things together and generating recommendations of things to do and places to go. Little did we know we were building kind of the classic social, local, mobile app that has been tried and failed many, many times before. Worse, we were building that on a college campus and in an educational environment, another place where the startup graveyard is quite large. And through a lot of customer discovery, through a lot of trial and error, that product, well, one, it, it did get us into Techstars through actually a, a first customer really was, was what showed a lot of traction on, on that concept. We had the University of Colorado sign up to, to pilot that to their students. Right. That got us into Techstars. Throughout Techstars, we pivoted and adapted that to become Native. And what we did with... N Native is a company name, just because Native is this is actually name. the yes. problem with the name. Right. right. <laughs> Huge SEO challenges there. <laughs> Um, but but with Native, we broadened the vision outside of the college campus more to anyone who was in a new city, whether you were traveling, whether you were just trying to discover and, and learn your own city. But the thing that happened within Techstars was... First, we really realized that the problem that we were going out to solve was very much a vitamin and not so much a painkiller in that it solved an okay problem, 
but maybe we had manufactured a little bit of that product to begin with. I, I don't think we did the proper amount of customer discovery and the proper amount of validation that this was actually a, a pain worth solving. In fact, overwhelmingly, we found as we dove deeper and deeper and deeper that the the solution, the competitor to Native, was word of mouth. And word of mouth was actually working really well. <laughs> you know, you found out about that Red Rocks concert from your friend, and then you decide to go together. And in fact, when we were generating really great records, recommendations, you wouldn't go because you didn't have anyone to go with. That's great. Yeah. And, and, and there was definitely a conceivable path for us to bring native into reality. You know, it would have been an ad based product. A lot of capital would have been required to get the user base needed to monetize off of that revenue model. But ultimately what we realized was we had strayed so far out of our passion area, you know, that passion of discovery that caused us to found Varsity, that we knew that we didn't have the tenacity to build a seven-year or more business off of the native concept. So Nicole Gleros, who at the time for many years ran the Techstars Boulder program, the first Techstars program, I think I heard her say once that about your program year, she had committed to never accept another social recommendation company, and then she accepted your company. So I'm just going to ask again, what do you think it was about you and your co-founder and your vision that made her deviate from what sounded like a pretty hard and fast rule that actually ultimately you ended up agreeing with to accept you guys? I think what Nicole saw in us was the ability to learn and the ability to take feedback and act on that feedback quickly. The week before our Techstars interview, uh, we had a one-on-one meeting with Nicole and she explained to us the four reasons why our business concept wasn't going to work. That doesn't sound like her at all. (laughs) No, not at all. And then... Our Techstars interview, where most companies would spend the four minutes explaining to the panel uh, what their product did and, and why it was important, we spent those four minutes, one point per minute, refuting or challenging or uh, providing evidence against why the reasons why she thought the company would fail, why, why we thought that it would be successful. And I think she saw that tenacity and that interest in in making our business happen, but also our focus on her feedback, uh, understanding, internalizing, and then f- figuring out how that feedback affected the way that we ran our business, which was, I think, what, what she found interesting and, and fell in love with. I interrupted you a bit. You were talking about this point where you realized that this company, which at that time was called Native, the Social Recommendation Project, wasn't interesting enough to keep your engagement for the five to seven year horizon. What happened next? Lots of things. <laughs> we interacted a lot. You, you know that it was a, it was a pretty interesting time for us. Uh, I think one of your suggestions was that we could become a consulting company till we figured it out and, you know, build stuff for other people until, until we knew what we wanted to build ourselves. We were, we were in a really interesting position because it was the week after Techstars Demo Day when we found this out. Yeah, and let's also inject, right, you also had investor interest from qualified investors, including myself, who were really looking at you exactly as Nicole had been looking at you, which is like most investors looking at the team instead of the idea and mm-hmm. willing to hang around to see what happened. Right, yeah, we, we, we had a pretty sizable friends and family around circled as well. 
You know, the first thing that we had to do was come to terms with that this wasn't the business that we were going to build. And there was a bit of a coming out that Leanne and I had to do with each other. In fact, I remember the day that we sat down and, and talked about the post-Techstars hangover, okay, how are we going to actually make this work conversation? And I think Leanne was the first one who breached the subject of like, is this really what we want to build? And I remember it, we talked about this afterwards, but she said, you know, I was really afraid to to say that to you because if I didn't want to do it and you did it would be a problem. Once we had alignment there, we had to come to terms with like, what was the why behind why we founded Varsity? What was the why behind why we decided to do this together? And how could we take that why and and bring that through through whatever concept we were going to build? The why that we really centered around was this concept of discovery, you know, the, the concept of helping people become more empathetic, helping people see new things. And that's where the idea of travel really started coming from because you know what Leanne and I knew was if we helped more people get on an airplane in 10 years we knew that the world was going to be a better place we knew that people would be you know more empathetic more accepting of diversity you you can't travel without feeling that I think what we did is we summed up our fear with Native is, you know, with Native, we would help a lot of college students find, you know, bars and clubs. And that wasn't, you know, mission fulfilling for us at all. After realizing that and building a why for ourselves, we went out and we started testing concepts. We did a bunch of customer discovery. We talked to over 140 people who were frequent travelers. Um, and, and there's a whole process and we can kind of get into all the experimentation that we did there. But, but you know, then the other step that we had to do was, was convincing basically our, our group of cheerleaders that, that this was what we wanted to do and that, that we also felt that there was traction in the business model and you know, all the sound things that we had spent the last eight months trying to build up and, and figure out for, for Varsity, which became Native. So this is really obvious to you what you guys did, but it's not obvious to everyone and I saw it, so I just want to highlight it. So you had this idea that travel was the thing that you wanted to pursue and my recollection is you had three different ideas about what might be interesting in travel, and you guys have incredible design acumen, and both of you founders were also developers, so you were able to get these experiments live within minutes. So just spend a moment talking about what you did to figure out where to focus within travel. Absolutely. So we decided to build three apps in three weeks. You know, I don't even know if I remember the other two concepts. One of them was curated local guides at $10 a guide. The other was a exclusive network of travelers who would share basically travel best practices and help each other uncover the, the hidden gems. And the other was, you know, travel agent in your pocket, essentially, what, what would become Pana. And so we built minimum viable products for each of these. We had various fidelities that, that we went into each concept. I, I think one, we just built a splash page and drove some Google AdWords traffic to that splash page. The other two, we actually built minimum viable products and actually got users and, and had them using them. But the most important thing was we narrowed down on like what was the value proposition that we were going to provide for each of these and figured out the fastest way possible that we could start demonstrating that value proposition in the most realistic way that it would look in the final product. And the one that won is now Pana, right? Yep. Do you recall how you were testing it? We were testing it by planning people's travel via text message. It right. was Leanne uh, and, and Sam and I sitting 
behind a text message interface asking people if they would pay us to plan and book their travel. Yeah, and this is a great example. And anyone who's read The Lean Startup or the other books that have come out since then about how to do this understands this game, which is to the user, it looked fairly seamless. And it uh, to be candid, I mean, the app now has come so far. But it looked like a fully operating company with an app that was working. On the back were, at that time, three co-founders, because you added Sam Felsenthal as a co-founder, essentially not sleeping at all and doing an <laughs> enormous amount of travel research on Google, right? Yep. Googling, kayak.com. We, it was very much a Wizard of Oz MVP, and that the thing behind the curtain was, was not what the product was going to become. The, the thing that really helped us realize that Hannah was going to be the thing was... I read a blog post, and I wish I could remember what the blog post was, but it basically talked about how starting a startup is so challenging and building something of immense incremental value that the switching costs of people doing what they were doing before and switching to you um, are so high and so difficult that in order for a concept to be successful... You have to have this inner circle of people who are obsessed with your product. People who would stop a train from hitting you because they want this product to be successful, you know? And and we started getting that cohort built around the panic concept. Actually, Julie Penner from Techstars was one of our first initial cheerleaders. She's like, this is incredible. I feel like I have an expert in my pocket. And I also feel like for some reason he's my friend and we hang out, but we don't, you know? And when we started realizing that people were getting so excited about the product um, at its core that wasn't happening with the other two. It probably could have, you know, maybe if we had pushed it far enough. But the idea is that you need that group of people who are insanely excited about it because then there's a high likelihood that there's a larger, much more profitable group of people who are maybe half as excited, but still excited enough that, you know, they're going to pay you for the product. So in the conversations that you had after deciding that this was the path forward, the conversations that you have with your committed soft-circled investors, what percentage said, sure, I'm with you regardless of this transition into the travel industry? 100% said, sure. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We, we had no investors that, that we had committed pre-pivot not come along for the ride. That's unbelievable. And it's a great testament to you guys. So you have had the same team, essentially, you added Sam a little bit later, but the same co-founder team now for basically this entire journey. I know you're pretty mindful about how culture works and the team dynamics, and it looks great. Like you guys have been pals for years and you're all doing this and it's easy. And, you know, we hear all sorts of stories about co-founders living together for five years as they try to make this happen. And it's all just kumbaya all the time. How's it been as you've transitioned into the different phases of the business for you and your team? Hard. On the outside, it might look good, I suppose, but it's been incredibly difficult. Right. Um, well, good and hard aren't necessarily opposites. Let's just be sure we understand that, right? That's true. Cool. No, Go no, ahead. absolutely true. In fact, I feel like my emotional development as a human has jumped 15 years in, in eight months of figuring out how to be a co-founder. And that development has... It, it, it's been hard. Um, it's stalled the business at times. Um, there are times when, you know, w without figuring out your working agreements with each other and your culture with each other, you're you're not moving forward. And especially in tech stars, um, especially if you're going through any similar sort of 
uh, arrangement where you have high expectations and limited amount of time and limited amount of capital, the pressure cooker can make things even worse. But actually, Techstars was really great for helping us either have to figure it out or have it completely blow up very quickly. If we hadn't had that, some of the external pressures that come along with needing to raise capital, with having burn, with having an accelerator, with having expectations of investors, some of our founder issues might not have come out for another five years. And you know, we would have been so dysfunctional at that point. So what are the agreements that you all have as founders having continued to learn from each other and improve yourselves individually and as a team? I think that candor and transparency are the two largest lessons that we've learned together and uh, values that that we hold dearest with each other and and with the team. Um, Every executive check-in begins with an, an opportunity for us to all say things that we've thought three or more times, something that you say a lot. That, that we've thought three or more times but haven't shared. Correct. Yeah, something that we've thought three or more times but haven't shared with each other. So you know, basically the, the idea being these are things that really should be said among all three founders. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're things we're scared about. Sometimes they're things we're pissed off about. But having that sort of understanding that if someone isn't saying something, they're likely not thinking about it. And that just clears so much of the bureaucratic, backstabby crap that exists in probably 95% of corporate cultures in the world. Just removing that from our startup has enabled us to be be productive together and, and be successful together. It also has enabled us to really like each other, which uh, was an unknown side effect. That That's would an come added from benefit. Yeah, is, added benefit. Is there a third? <laughs> is there a third principle that guides how you operate together? I would say as having two out of three technical co-founders and then having a, a third co-founder who has written some code before and gets you know what it, what it is to be the, the technical mindset. I think experimentation and the process of having empathy in a situation, running an experiment to validate that gut, and then looking at the outcomes is something that is a system that we all work with here. It fosters a lot of playfulness and, and energy in the company because you know we have an idea and we have a gut about it and we give the freedom to say, great, build a hypothesis and go test it. You know, What I love about that mindset, which I definitely see here at Pana, is that you don't have to be attached to being right. Right. I mean, if everybody's coming up with ideas and you have the sophistication in analytics and the ability to create experiments quickly, then you really just don't have to lobby for your idea. You can hold it super lightly, take care of it. There is no I told you so, because if you only argue about it for five minutes, I mean, there's really not a pent up energy around it. I, I really think that's fantastic. We have a mechanism here for actually checking ourselves on uh, because Sam and I actually are quite competitive in our debates. Sometimes they can get fairly heated, even though it's fairly baseless of things that we're debating about. We have a and and I don't know how PG this this is, but we go for it. Okay, we it's it's our shits given scale. Uh, it's it's out of one out of ten, and often you know when when we're in an argument, we. Uh, we will we'll, we'll check ourselves and I'm like, okay, what are you on this? Because, you know, I'm like a nine out of 10. 
and and Sam will, will stop and he'll be like, you know what? I'm like a three out of ten on this. I I just so the really... tie the tie goes to the guy with the most shits given. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that the, makes the, great the tie sense. goes to the person with the gut. You know, because if Sam cares enough to be a nine out of ten or a ten out of ten on something, I'm I. I have no right and no knowledge to to tell him not to go test that. That makes great sense. So just to get us from the place of making that pivot, 100% buy-in on friends and family from the folks who had committed, you've now gone through a, an additional fundraise and just talk through who your current investor list includes and what you're looking at as your next phase, both for the business and, and fundraising. Absolutely. So we did in August of last year raise a seed round of financing. We raised 1.4 million from some phenomenal partners from Techstars Ventures. Nicole, who was our managing director and now became a board member through that financing, Foundry Group, Galvanize, Flight VC in San Francisco, and a whole host of amazing angels, including John Tucker, one of the co-founders of Trunk Club, Nirial, who's one of my favorite speakers and authors on the topic of behavioral design and a whole host of other amazing people. I just want to jump in for a second. If I'm right, John Tucker actually reached out to you and that that's actually happened a number of times, right? He did. Actually, both John and Nir were, were cold emails of the opposite kind that we're used to as entrepreneurs. Cold emails to you. Right. <laughs> I don't think those are called cold emails. I think those are called the greatest day you've had this month emails. Yes, they are. Yeah. That's great. And how's the business doing? It's going really well. We're learning a lot, always doing that as entrepreneurs. We're at a place where we've absolutely found problem-solution fit. There is a, a problem that people are feeling related to their travel, and we have a viable solution to that. And now the exercise is really figuring out how do we get that out into the market and how do we tell the message about what we are, who we are, and um, who we're for. And those are a whole new set of experiments that we get to run. And uh, we're having a lot of fun running those, both figuring out how we can improve travel for individuals, but also now increasingly how we figure out how to solve some of the pains that growing organizations have with travel. Devin, you started this project working on travel for individuals, whether it's business travel or personal travel, and now you've launched Pana for Teams to go directly after the B2B space. Help me understand what the gap is that you're fulfilling with Pana that isn't met already by Concur or Gencia, these players that are in the travel management space. We're seeing a lot of opportunities to to help solve pains in corporate travel. First of all, travel management companies are, are old and lack the innovation power that a lot of early stage startups are. You know, travel agents, especially corporate travel agents, are still sitting behind command line prompts and typing in commands and pulling up flights that way. Like that's the state of technology in the business today. Um, there's also not a lot of resources for growing companies who want to provide a technology forward solution to their business. It's either go with one of the old guys or make your entire staff deal with all of their travel management by themselves, which you know wastes their time, is not helpful to their productivity, and, and they're not good at it. You know, not, They're not making the best decisions there. So one of your taglines is that you guys at Pana offer travel management for companies that actually care about their employees. And just tell our listeners, what is it that is so unique about Pana that delivers on that promise of caring? 
We're the only travel company that gives you access to the real human beings that help you plan, book, and manage your travel in under 60 seconds. Like right now, I could pull out my phone and send a text to my Pana travel team that I need to be in New York next week or that my flight got canceled or that I have a couple meetings and I need an extra day in you know Florida. And that access and that immediacy and that care that you are opening your employees up to receiving is something that really only Pana provides in the corporate travel space. So what's your favorite Pana story? Something you've done for one of your users that stands out for you? So we have one of our customers who works with extremely high profile people. She's a consultant for celebrities and has a lot of celebrity data on on her laptop, interacts with them on a daily basis. And she was going through TSA one day. There was a problem with the TSA pre-check line. So she had to take her laptop out of her bag, which she's not used to doing. She left TSA. She was headed on the way to her gate. And she realized that she didn't have her laptop with her. So she knew that she wasn't going to make her flight. So she instantly shot off a text to Panna saying like, hey, can you put me on the next flight? And Panna said, we're on it. And she didn't have to think about her travel anymore. So what that did is that opened up the opportunity for her to go back to TSA, ask what happened to her laptop. Turns out her laptop wasn't there. So she walked with the TSA security personnel up and down the concourse looking for her laptop found the guy who had stolen her laptop, got the laptop back with him, looked at her phone, and Panna had booked her on a flight that was leaving in 20 minutes. And she got back on that flight and went on with her day like nothing had happened. And the fact that she just didn't even have to think about her travel and take care of the things that mattered to her and what mattered to her was getting her laptop with that data on it. That's such an embodiment of what we're trying to do here at Pana. Make it so you don't have to think about your travel so that you can focus on what matters to you. Awesome. Devin, what's one thing that people would be surprised to learn about you? If people don't see me in person, they're surprised to learn that I'm 24 years old. (laughs) We already have that one. So what's next on the list? People are also surprised that I'm technical, but... We already have that one too. (laughs) Right. And why are they surprised that you're technical? I think that one of the things that makes a great technical person is that early on in life, they selected for interacting with computers rather interacting with humans. (laughs) And uh, as a result, uh, that, that comes across in their personality. But I don't know. I guess I have always found joy and energy in interacting with people, but also I find the technical problems that we have to solve in the next 40, 60, 100 years extremely interesting and uh, a fun thought exercise to spend time on. That's fantastic. So I have been using Pana since the very beginning, since the days of duct tape and glue. We're holding this thing together on the back end. Pana's come a long way since then, and truly it takes all of the hassle out of traveling, and actually makes business travel and vacations fun again. So if you want a month free trial on Pana, go right now to Pana.com or search Pana in the iOS store and grab your one month free trial. If you work at a company and you're interested in finding out how Pana for Teams can really fill the gap that is unfilled by Concur and their compatriots, reach out to Devin at Pana.com and I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you about it. Devin, thank you so much for being with us today on Real Leaders Radio. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you're out there and you know about other leaders who might be willing to tell the truth and the story behind the story about their company, Big or Small, please reach out to me on Twitter at at 
Hotel, Sue. As always, Real Leaders Radio is brought to you by Merge Lane, the accelerator and investment fund for startups with at least one female in leadership, and the Conscious Leadership Group, bringing conscious leadership principles to great leaders and the companies they run through coaching and events. You can learn more about those two companies at mergelane.com or conscious.is. And to learn more about me, to listen to more episodes of Real Leaders Radio, visit me at tellsue.com and I'll see you all next time.